When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Six weeks in, the war in Ukraine has passed a turning point. On Sunday, Ukraine's Prosecutor General said that more than 400 civilians had been killed by retreating Russian troops near Kyiv. Some were found with their hands tied behind their backs. The true death toll, few doubt, will be even higher. On Tuesday, in front of a hushed chamber at the United Nations, President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of committing a catalogue of horrors. He pleaded for the world to do more to bring Vladimir Putin to justice. The escalation of brutality is being met with an escalation in condemnation, and the West has vowed to ramp up sanctions. But three countries are advocating for a much stronger response to the aggression. They're the leaders of the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, encircled by Russia and with the memory of Soviet occupation and their own fight for liberation still fresh. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, does today's Russia threaten the Baltic states? My guest is Prime Minister of Lithuania, Ingrida Shimonita. An economist by trade, she served as her country's finance minister for three years before being elected to office in 2020, the second woman to hold the post. On her watch, Lithuania became the first European Union country to ban Russian gas and expel its Russian ambassador. Her hardline approach to autocrats goes a step further than most. She's dared to take on China over its treatment of Taiwan, and Lithuania is now the subject of a trade boycott from Beijing. So will tough talk be enough to prevent conflict in the historically vulnerable Baltics? Prime Minister Ingrida Shimonita, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, thank you for having me. Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine in its sixth week now, there is widespread international condemnation of war crimes alleged to have been committed by Russian troops in areas that they held temporarily, primarily in Bucha, a city on the outskirts of Kiev. How should Europe and how should the West respond to the war in the light of the revelations of those fresh atrocities? Well, the war is uh, continuing, uh, Ukrainians would say, and I would agree with them, for eight years since the annexation of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine. But of course, this ugly phase that started in the end of February, 24th of February, is a new development and something quite many people around the globe were not believing could happen. And um, I think there are still the same three paths for reaction of a civilized population of the globe, so to say. I'm speaking about the democratic countries that share democratic values. One path being support Ukraine. 
And by support Ukraine, I mean uh, military support, whatever Ukraine needs to defend itself, because Ukraine is not defending just itself. And I repeat uh, saying this because some people might think that, you know, this is something quite remote from us. But I think quite many of people heard the notion of uh, Mr. Medvedev about Eurasia from uh, Lisbon to Vladivostok as soon as they liberate all the countries from Nazism, as they call it. He's a very senior player in Russian politics, a former prime minister indeed. So what he says can be taken to stand for Vladimir Putin. I think that reflects a certain point of view. And this is not just blah, blah, blah. You know, it's much more serious than blah, blah, blah. So we need to support Ukraine military, uh, technically, whatever they need, fuel, uh, equipment, humanitarian aid, medical aid, whatever. Then, of course, there are more than 3 million people who fled the country because of shelling, of uh, mass bombing. So we need to take care of those people. These are basically women and kids. I'm going to break in if I could, because I think what you describe is still very largely the response of the international community. But there are some tensions here and there are some decisions to make, aren't there? And and one of them is how far to target Russia's energy sector, particularly coal, which is uh, the proposal is to add that more aggressively to the sanctions list. Do you see this list of measures against Russia stepping up? Or do you think the West is trying to bank on solutions that it came up with in the first few weeks, but which may not be working terribly well? Well, this is the second path. And the second path is the pressure on Russia. And sanctions is a pressure on Russia, although we all need to be in our sober mind and understand that whatever sanctions Western countries impose, Russia will not collapse and sort of disentangle in one day. This is not going to happen because there is a very significant inertia in the processes. And as you might see from the current exchange of ruble, what they are trying to portray, they are trying to portray that, look, sanctions are not working because ruble is doing fine. So we all need to be very much in details to understand that this is not a real market. There is not a real market for for ruble anymore. So this is an artificial thing that has no, no, no meaning. And same comes true about sanctions, however harsh those would be. So definitely we are pro-hitting uh, the financial sector, the banks that are yet not disrupted, and also sanctioning the oil, gas, and coal industry. So there is an agreement on coal. There are decisions about oil in some of the countries, including my country, but this was a sovereign decision of our refinery not to use the Russian oil anymore for manufacturing purposes. There are decisions about gas, like we took the decision about gas. And in terms of revenue, these are the major sources of revenue for Kremlin. So that's where it gets interesting to the extent that Lithuania took the step to become the first EU country to end imports of Russian gas. But when it comes to the bigger consumers, and particularly those in what we used to call Western Europe, there is clearly a split here. Both Austria and, more significantly, Germany have ruled out a ban on gas for the foreseeable future. Even President Macron, who hasn't ruled it out, is still stopping short of acting on gas. Now, to some people, this is like not bringing your big bazooka to the fight on sanctions against Vladimir Putin. Are they wrong? Well, I think they are right and wrong because they are right in the way that the situation is so dire and the losses of lives and those women that have been 
raped and killed in places like Bucha and so many places we do not know about yet because the Ukrainian army still needs to get into the places to find what's on the ground. That will take time. So the memory of those people still calls on us to, to be as decisive as we can. But on the other hand, as I mentioned, this thinking that if we impose sanctions today, this would stop war tomorrow. Unfortunately, this is not how it will work. It will take longer time because Russia has the big economy, unfortunately, uh, still having some space to move and still continue the war. Do you think though, that Germany, let's take Germany as the big example here. It's an extremely important government in terms of its centrality in the EU and its economic heft. Do you think it will ultimately be forced by international public pressure to join sanctions on oil and gas? I think they will do that. Uh, they will do that not because of pressure. They will do that because of their own recalculation of things. Because uh, you can see some steps that are quite important in this respect. This takeover of a storage facility that happened a couple of days ago. You know, we had Gazprom once in our gas company. They were having a share in our gas company, half of the stock. And we had to buy out uh, their shares because they were having the profits and uh, sanctioning our people, our consumers with high prices. So we had to rethink our strategy to uh, shift to alternative supplies. So uh, I would say that for Germany, they are taking steps in the same direction. Well, that would take years, Prime Minister, that would take years. That is not an answer to the sanctions pressure in the, ne- in the foreseeable future. Well, it depends. It depends. So uh, I think that the problem is that there were quite many miscalculations in the past. But you cannot change the past. You can only change the future. So I think that the German government will do utmost to uh, decouple from Russian gas as soon as possible. Let's talk about security and indeed the response to those alleged war crimes committed in Bucha. Western leaders are pledging to send both more in terms of aid, but also lethal weapons to Ukraine. Are you concerned about a spiral towards retaliation? You were yourself uh, citing Dmitry Medvedev there, uh, sounding very bullish. So where would you draw the line between being tough with Russia and risking escalation? I'm asked this question quite often. People do say, what can we do uh, to sort of make Russia happy so that it would retreat? And I think this is the most crazy question to ask. There is not such a thing we can give. We, Of course, uh, some people might uh, say that we can give Ukraine. But I mean, Ukraine does not belong to us. Ukraine belongs to Ukrainian people. And if Ukrainian people, in their love of their country, think that they uh, will be fighting like hell, they will be fighting like hell, and we should be supporting them. Because, you know, one of the major problems of Western leaders in contemplating Russian leadership, they act or they think like, you know, Putin needs to save face. Well, for God's sake, he doesn't need to save face. I mean, if he will want to portray himself as a winner in front of his population, he will do that. They have an enormous machine of propaganda. Uh, People are brainwashed for 20 years. I mean, he doesn't need this. So he is making a point to Western leaders and to President Biden and others. And he's just checking how far he can go. And if West succumbs, that will have a fatal consequences in my eyes. And that's why we should not be fooled by this retreat, as they call it, because uh, they want to regroup. 
They want maybe to send some baseless signal that, you know, we maybe are rational, let's discuss something. But at the same time, they uh, continue saying the same nonsense on United Nations uh, Security Council and, and other places. And how do you judge the security threat to the Baltic states? It was something that was a lot in the discussion when the invasion happened, but uh, it's perhaps gone a little bit off the top of the news bulletins. Do you still think of it as a potentially serious step that the Kremlin could take to invade one or more of the Baltic states? Well, if you recall the ultimatum that was issued by Putin in the end of last year, he was speaking not about Ukraine. He was also speaking about the uh, NATO and expansion of NATO after 1997, because he's invented the idea that, you know, expansion of NATO after 1997 should not have happened. And he has the right to claim that there should be a second tier NATO countries, the countries that joined in the process. So basically, it's not just about the Baltic countries. It's about uh, Eastern Europe, all the countries of previous Soviet Warsaw uh, Pact. I mean, this is a sort of a push for those areas of influence in the boundaries of the end of Second World War. So I would not say this is a direct threat, but this is a mindset. This is how he sees the world. And of course, geographically, you're very close indeed to that kind of scenario or threatened scenario, your southern border, Lithuania, is the Suvalki Gap, that corridor that separates the Baltic states and Poland from Belarus and from Kaliningrad, which is the small Russian territory on the Baltic Sea. It's been seen as a blind spot. Uh, Defence strategists uh, argue endlessly about what to do with it. You must, of course, see all the military intelligence around that. How would you strengthen that gap? And how closely are you working with NATO, perhaps to change up how NATO operates and supports Lithuania and the region? Oh, yes. Uh, Given that there was a claim by Putin who said that it's NATO that is threatening Russia, I would like to mention that it's actually vice versa, (laughs) because uh, there was no forward presence in the region before uh, Putin annexed Crimea in 2014. So when he did this, the presence on the ground was implemented in the Baltic states and in other countries of the region. Now, when he attacked Ukraine, there is a much more significant numbers of troops and military equipment and other resources that are placed here, not only in Baltic countries, but also in Poland and in other countries of the region, because this is a, a response towards what Putin is doing. So this is very important. And now if we look like sort of a long term we should take into account that the situation, the geopolitical situation changed a lot regardless of what will happen in Ukraine. Because Belarus, as a matter of fact, became a soil that is rented for Russian military purposes. And the presence of Russian army on the soil of Belarus might stay quite significant for a very long period of time. So this is changing the geopolitical situation and also the security situation. I can understand that in the longer term, you must be quite content, even if the circumstances are so adverse, to see NATO deploying those troops, around 40,000 troops under its direct command, which cover the eastern part of the Baltics. But that's a short-term solution, or at least it's a countermeasure. And NATO has also said it will not, President Biden, very clear that there will be direct military engagement with Russia. So, I mean, if I was sitting where you're sitting, Prime Minister, I might think, well, this looks very good on the great board game of risk. But practically speaking, I would not be terribly sure that it will deter Russia. 
Would I be right? I don't want to speculate. You know, when you are an analyst or a journalist, you can uh, sort of uh, let yourself this uh, frivolity, but but it's not a prime minister's job to speculate. I would say what I'm doing and what we are doing as a country. And I think we are working very thoroughly on the plans, how we change our approach from this pure deterrence approach towards the forward defense approach, because this is what is needed in the current circumstances. And this means much more presence of our NATO partners in the region. Of course, this means much more security spending for us, but we are ready to do this. Is this a period where we're seeing a retreat of the aspiration to neutrality or commitment to neutrality by countries such as Finland and Sweden? And do you think that ultimately this is going to nudge them away from an era of neutrality for some countries? What's your view on that? Well, uh, you know, it's not for me to speculate <laughs> again. And I think this is a decision of Finnish and Swedish people and their governments. But for me, as a prime minister of one of the Baltic countries, I would be uh, very much more assured if all the countries around the sea would be part of the NATO. Uh, but in practical terms, I must stress that we have a very good uh, cooperation with Swedish and, and Finnish partners on many counts, including security, cybersecurity, and, and other areas uh, of common interest, especially after Russia materialized their intentions to grab for lands in 2008 and 2014. Let's talk about Lithuania's relationship with Russia. Of course, the, the Baltic states have Russian populations mixed in. It's actually much higher in Estonia, about a quarter of the population, 34% in Latvia. In your country, it is smaller, but that is also a challenge, isn't it? Because you also have to think about how this is going to land with Russian speakers in your country. How do you make that balance, particularly in a time when emotions and fears are running high? Uh, this is a very valid point. And, you know, this is not just Putin's war against Ukraine. This is Russia's war against Ukraine. But then we need to understand or take Russia as a uh, citizenship, not as a nationality. Because, yes, we have uh, people of Russian minority living in our country. This is not as big as Latvia or Estonia. But still, I want them to feel at home in our country. And I know that supporters of Putin are basically nationless because you can find admirers of Putin in so many countries. Because what Russia was very smart in doing in terms of their propaganda, they do not frame the propaganda, you know, by putting question, do you love Putin or not? You know, they are framing questions in a different way. They are framing questions, are you pro-vaccines? Do you believe in COVID? Are, are you a pro-LGBT community? Are you for Istanbul Convention? And now, do you like high fuel prices. And you know, they are trying to use this internal political debate that seems pretty neutral, that seems to have nothing to do with Russia, but they are always interfering in those socially sensitive issues that are sort of pending in one or another country. And we see that not only here, but also in other countries, only we can recognize it easier. Well, you, you've certainly been forthright in the Lithuanian response. You've banned Russian television channels. You've expelled the Russian ambassador. Um, I was wondering a bit about the banning of the television channels. I, I know other Baltic states have done so too. At least Latvia has done so. Do you not fear then that you start to look, and it very easily is presented 
by Moscow as well. These people are intolerant of the Russian point of view. And how do you answer that? Well, we still have uh, sources of information that are in Russian, and those are in uh, cable uh, television packages. Uh, for example, Radio Free uh, Europe, uh, Radio Liberty, that is broadcasting from Prague. We were broadcasting Dost until the very last moment. It was shut by Kremlin. So definitely there is not a fight against Russian-speaking media resources. On the contrary, we have quite many uh, media people who had to flee Russia and who found their shelter somewhere in the Baltic states because they could not work in, in Russia and they are providing pretty adequate and accurate information about what is happening. The problem is that they abandoned Russia. So uh, seeing this content that you see, in, in, in this is not a TV. This is just uh, Goebbels and nothing else. It's Goebbels. You would directly compare Russia's TV propaganda to Goebbels. I don't think this is an exaggeration. I would think this is the accurate naming of what is happening. And so for that reason, a ban is justifiable. Yeah, because if somebody wants to, to get an information, uh, some piece of information in Russian, then we even providing our own resources in Russian for our Russian-speaking minority or Polish uh, so that they could uh, be sort of on the, same, on the same page. But we don't want them to eat this material that they are producing in Kremlin. Coincidentally, you do have one thing in common with the situation in, in Moscow at the moment, and that is Lithuania itself has been the target of some very sweeping sanctions, the most that any country has faced proportionately for upsetting the Chinese Communist Party. And that followed your decision to allow Taiwan to open an outpost in Vilnius and call it the Taiwanese Representative Office. That went down very badly indeed with Beijing. Do you regret inflaming tensions? Well, I don't regret us to take a decision to strengthen our ties with Taiwan. I think that these are quite vibrant and productive. And so I'm, I'm sorry that uh, Chinese government, I think uh, the reaction was uh, unsurprisingly strong for me. But I think what is important uh, that those actions that were taken against the European companies, basically interfering into a single market where China has a very vast interest as a country in terms of market share, were considered unacceptable not only by us, but also by other European countries and by European institutions. So basically, uh, we are in WTO now on this issue. And I think this is the way how a civilized country should discuss issues about it. It may, however, be worth conceding that the experience of Lithuania here is probably making other countries less likely to follow suit. Well, I know that this representative office has been opened after quite a while. There were no new uh, offices opened in whatever country. It was like 16 or, or whatever years. But I think this was a sovereign decision of a sovereign country to strengthen its ties with uh, Taiwanese business and universities. And I, I see it this way still and, and no change there. Yes, yeah, so you're more likely to get a friendly visit to Taiwan than to Beijing, I think, for the foreseeable future. You've written for us at The Economist that diplomacy is impossible with a pathological liar, Mr. Putin, who gives promises he never means to keep. Does that mean that the diplomacy pushes that we're seeing President Macron as heading the European track in this direction, the so-called off-ramp idea that you could find a diplomatic way to end or at least freeze the war in Ukraine? It sounds like you don't really believe in this. 
Well, I don't know how much uh, President Macron believes it uh, himself, but, you know, in our lives, there are situations when you are doing things that you do not actually believe will bear any fruit, but you are still doing it. So I would maybe attribute it to this sort of activity, because if we come back to the situation where the invasion started, uh, he was telling to Chancellor Scholz a day before he invaded that he's not going to invade. And now all those, you know, hours and hours of talks when he's just explaining the same story about his approach towards the world and how unjust that Ukraine exists and, and this sort of, of, of text, I don't think that that brings us somewhere. But I'm not surprised that President Macron is still trying. There are some cracks, however, starting to show in the unity front if we look at the re-election of Orban in Hungary, Marine Le Pen's recent surge in France, uh, President Vucic's re-election in Serbia. I sometimes wonder, we're sitting here you know, advocating for strong responses to President Putin. Are we missing the fact that quite a number of significant countries are not taking the view that he needs to be decisively defeated? Do you worry that we may be prone to a little bit too much optimism here? Well, uh, so far, I'm cautiously optimistic because I would say that, of course, it's a pity that it came uh, on the count of so many deaths and so many losses and so much devastation in Ukraine. But I would say a year ago, I would have had a significantly harder situation in persuading uh, my colleagues in other countries that Kremlin is what it is. Because there were still hopes until the, I would say, mid of February, that you actually still somehow can trade in Russia into a civilized world, something we did not believe for so many years. I mean, we were saying about this loudly, saying we should decouple, uh, suggesting this to our good friends in Germany, not to start this Nord Stream 2 project and, and not to have too deep relations with Russia because one day we will regret this. But we are where we are. And unfortunately, it took a war, this dirty face in, in Ukraine, so that so many people were actually awakened. Prime Minister Ingrid Simonita, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. And do let us know what you think about the state of developments around the Ukraine crisis. The Prime Minister has taken the step of turning off the Russian gas tap in Lithuania. But will international pressure be enough to get Germany and other EU countries to follow suit? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. In my conversation with Prime Minister Shimonita, we discussed the column she wrote for The Economist. It was her contribution to our Buy Invitation series. And that's where we invite the world's leading thinkers to put forward their opinions on the pressing issues of our time. You can read Ms. Shimonita's column on our website as well as a piece from her Estonian counterpart, Kaya Kallas, on why she's pushing for NATO to change its defence priorities. Of course, the only way to enjoy full access to all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. To sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Hold up. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.